Welcome to the future of education. And now, here's your host, Michael Horn. Oh, welcome, welcome, welcome to the future of education. I'm Michael Horn, and today we welcome Susan Zellman to the show. Susan served in a number of interesting roles across the education ecosystem. She's currently president of the Zellman Education Consulting Group. I'll tell you more about why I'm particularly interested in having her today in a moment, but just to give you a little bit more of her background, before that, she was the executive director of the superintendency at the Ohio Department of Education. She has also served as the senior vice president for education and children's programming at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, where she developed policy and programs to integrate public service media into a national reform education agenda. And prior to that, she was the superintendent for public instruction in Ohio for 10 years. And during her tenure, the state of Ohio went from 29th among states to fifth in the 2009 Education Week Quality Counts Report. But more important for this conversation, she's also the author, or co-author, I should say, of a new and very interesting book titled The Buying and Selling of American Education. Susan, welcome. It's great to see you. It's great to be here, and thank you for interviewing me. Oh, you bet. You bet. So before we get into the conversation around the book and so forth, I've given obviously the thumbnail, if you will, of your bio. Uh, But I'm just sort of curious about your own journey through education and education policy and how that journey perhaps has shaped where you've spent your time and your passion uh, within the world of education? Well, you know, I, um, I love that question. And um, uh, actually, my I think education journey started when I was in sixth grade in Mrs. Eisner's class. At that time, we were living in the Marble Hill Projects. And on my floor, um, a family moved in from Harlem. And uh, the boy who, um, who was going to PS-122, though it's now not called PS-122, because uh, it was reconstituted, but um, uh, was in my class, in my sixth grade class. And, um, you know, I, I actually tried to befriend him and walked. We had a long walk to the elementary school together. And, you know, he seemed like such a nice, bright guy. Um, and he was quite tall. And uh, he lasted in my sixth grade class for one week. And then he got demoted to the fifth grade. So I asked my teacher, Mrs. Eisner, why? She said, well, he went to school in Harlem and they don't have good schools there. And I thought, how unfair, you know? And not only that, but um, he also got then to demoted to the fourth grade. And that really freaked me out because he was so tall and just stood out like a a, a sore thumb. And I thought, God, the system has failed poor Ernest Gibbs. And to this day in my old age, I still remember Ernest Gibbs and kind of wonder whatever happened to him. The second thing is that my grandparents were immigrants from Russia. But uh, education was the route to the middle class. I mean, my father was a lawyer. My uncle was a lawyer and a judge. My, and my uncles went to the city, co- city college, you know, in the 30s. And um, um, it was their way to become middle class. So education was always very important in a value. 
Plus, I was kind of a nerdy kid, you know, and I was the type of kid who failed summer camp. Nobody wanted me on their volleyball team, but I couldn't wait for school to start. So in some sense, even though I know my father wanted me to be a lawyer, education was my passion and I felt comfortable at school. And then I um, could have done co college in three years, but I stayed on to get certified. And for one year, I was a high school social studies teacher at Grace Dodge Vocational High School, right across the street. From and I was so, I would have to leave the teacher's room because I thought they were so judgmental about their students. You know, they said they couldn't tell the Bronx Zoo from the students at Grace Dodge. And that really pissed me off. So I then um, there was I was able to get a full scholarship, a fellowship then uh, to go to that. And I have to say this in mass because uh, I live in Ohio right now, um, that other university up north, University of Michigan. And I had um, I was in a doctoral program funded by the U.S. Department of Education to train people who were interested in education, who had an education background, but who would do research uh, planning an evaluation for public schools. Um, and I um, got to do my dissertation from the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review. I met my husband. That brought me to Boston. Um, and then um, he put it in our marriage contract. You know, uh, our marriage was null and void unless I uh, finished within a year, which I did. And then ironically, uh, through a high school English teacher he had, I got a job teaching at Emmanuel College. And I was an academic for the first 14 years of my career. I also simultaneously held a research appointment at the Harvard Educational Technology Center. Then I got an NSF grant from Columbia Teachers College for women who taught in small liberal arts colleges. I was getting kind of bored, you know, <laughs> even though my kids were young, I thought, I, uh, and I happened to meet actually Mike Dukakis um, at our neighbor's party who was in his law firm and becoming a judge. And um, I was recruited to join the uh, caucus administration as an associate commissioner. So I left my brilliant academic career <laughs> and joined state government. And not only that, but I really found my passion. You know, like I felt that I could help design and improve educational systems and I could make a sort of a greater impact. And I was the um, associate commissioner for a new division called educational personnel. And I lasted there for about six and a half years. And then I had an opportunity to um, uh, really break the glass ceiling and come to become the first uh, deputy commissioner in the state of Missouri. Oh my gosh, a far cry from ever been. And my two girls were in college at the time, but we took our son uh, to Missouri. And he used to call it the good enough state. Like, first of all, he was angry because I denied his birthright of going to Harvard Square every day. But uh, when he was in high school. But the reality was, I realized the variability in the quality of education from state to state. You know, he went to Arlington High, but uh, quite frankly, uh, where he went, uh, which was a, considered a very good district in Missouri, um, was not as challenging for him. Um, and, and that 
that gave me even more passion. <laughs> so, and then I was recruited to be a state superintendent um, in Ohio, and I did that for 10 years. I went to Washington for almost two, came back. I actually also did a short stint in a publishing company, Houghton Mifflin Hardcourt, um, Houghton, yeah, Houghton Mifflin. And um, then um, a new governor came in. He liked me, and I came back as executive director. You know, I, I'm just curious because you have a lot of experience across a lot of states, a lot of contexts, a lot of personal passion and anger in some cases tied into all of this, right? And you're sort of your why. And I'm curious what you wanted to pull into this book and really share with the readers as you wrote it. Uh, you know, I had a wonderful experience of seeing how legislation is crafted both at the federal, state, um, and policy at the local levels. And one of the things that was sort of struck me when I started to work in the State Department of Education and not the academic community was that people who engaged in education policymaking really didn't understand American educational history. And yet we were trying to improve and inform and um, reform the system. And, you know, um, you know, without uh, roots, trees perish. So I think it's really first thing is that very important for us to have a good conceptual model of where our American educational experimental system has been and is currently um, now over the past 230 years. And um, so that was one thing that I was uh, going to do. And I also wanted to um, highlight the sort of what I would call the structural problems um, in trying to reform an educational system that I saw up close and personal um, in the, particularly in the state roles that I um, performed. That was um, one of the reasons why I wrote the book. No, that's helpful. It gives context. And we'll, I'll, I'll dig back into the history piece in a moment. But but first, let's go to the title, because you have this super provocative title, The Buying and Selling of American Education. But and I'll give you some context for my question in a moment, because I, I really want to hear how you picked that title, because this isn't really a book about commercial interests That's in American right. education or capitalism in American education, nor is it like philanthropists <laughs> buying American education or even private right. schools. Frankly, it's not even like a Diane Ravitch type right. book. It's, it's none of that. So I'm, I'm sort of curious, like, why this title and what does it mean to well, you? You know, um, it was very clear to me in my work over the years that educational, our, our educational system was designed around the needs of adults in the system. And we all, including myself, have vested interest in this system. And it is so hard to um, change because of our vested interest. So in, in the, not the introduction, I think the prefix of the book, I talk about the seven Ps, <laughs> um, the politicians, the parents, the professionals, the publishers, the producers of educational software now, the plutocrats who want to keep the status quo, and, um, you know, and, and the partisans, you know, people from either the left or the right who don't like anything. So, <laughs> so I thought, and, uh, you know, um, I've always tried to be provocative. So I thought the buying and selling of American education, reimagining a new system of schools was, um, was a, a, a title which I would hope sells books, but who knows? 
We'll find out on that, but hopefully we'll help a little bit and get people a little bit more interested. And so I want to dig in on the history part of it, because this book has a lot on the history of American education. And frankly, it does it from a lot of the perspectives that you just laid out, the professionals, the politicians, et cetera. You sort of go around uh, in a variety of these angles and, and, and help us understand how we got to where we are today through the lens of, as you said, the last 230 years. And so I, I suppose this is a totally unfair question for a, a cast like this, but I'm curious, like, you know, as you think about the top couple things you hope people take away from that extensive history, what, what are they uh, in a little bit more detail as, sure. as we think about, you know, informing where we are now and where we Absolutely. go? Absolutely. Well, first of all, you know, education, teaching is not a linear type of thing. I mean, we don't have a curriculum. We teach a kid and and then we expect to measure results. It's really kind of, uh, I think teaching is, um, and, and doing school, first of all, doing school is hard work. And teaching and learning is a complex human act. And that we don't do it in a vacuum. I mean, your classroom in some sense is a social system, in a system of a district, in a system of a community. Um, and um, I think that um, in lots of ways, the school is a microcosm of what's really going on in society and also relating to other systems, the political system, the economic system, the taxation system, the health system, housing policies, which I talk about in my book, banking policies that create neighborhoods or uh, for whatever reason. So one is that this is really quite complex. And one of the things that I think um, I think educators need to do uh, is to immerse themselves. And your your book talks about this uh, in the um, and that um, you know I think one of the problems we have become a political tool uh, to tool to uh, the Republican Party uh, and 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 superintendents are leaving and teachers are angry and they are leaving and so forth is because we really didn't do a good enough job in community engagement. And we need to sort of open up the schoolhouse door. We need to let the community into the school and immerse ourselves and go out into the community like cultural anthropologists and, and also develop a sense of ep empathy for the families and the children we serve. And I think that's really, really important. And I think educators tend to be somewhat judgmental of their students. And that fosters a culture of, of soft bigotry of low expectations. And for this book, I interviewed 104 Ohio superintendents. And one of the things that came out, uh, particularly in Appalachia, and I'm spending a lot of my time working with Jason Learning, by the way, I think doing some terrific, incredible work in workforce development in Appalachia. One of the things the Appalachian uh, superintendents told me was because of a uh, food shortage and uh, difficulties of getting um, uh, learning materials, they went into the little hollows, little villages, and they saw the conditions in which their students lived. And that really changed a lot of teachers' attitudes.
toward the kids and toward the families. So I think that's really important. And I love your chapter where you talk about that, you know, you better as a superintendent or a principal understand that schools have different purposes for different families and you better assess that and you need to accommodate that. You need to develop trust. You need to listen. You need to uh, take your judgment and work with community-based um, uh, groups within your community and develop wisdom to solve problems. Well, so that's, I mean, it's a terrific set of points there, right? And 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 that piece of empathy and getting out into the community to understand the progress that they're trying to make and so forth. I think you're right. It could break down a lot of these walls. And as you said, tools are the pawns uh, that schools have become in a lot of these political fights. Uh, and so you give this diagnosis of how we got to where we are today and how broken and intractable some of it seems. But then really in this last culminating chapter, uh, chapter six, you end with this conclusion of how we can move forward. And, and it's really a, a major conclusion that you have is to embrace a more pluralistic view of American education in schools. And it's frankly, as you, 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 know, you sort of implied, right, it's very similar to where I ended up. Uh, in my new book, From Reopen to Reinvent, as I sort of worked my way through it. And, and I think we both took different paths to it, but right. we ended the same place. And so I'm just curious, tell us more about that conclusion sure. and why you see it as the only way forward. Well, first of all, I don't see it as the only way forward. I, I wanted to be provocative and, 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 say, and say to people, look, you're not going to like the, my vision, but, but let's all come together, form a multi-sector partnership and rethink. So let me start off, though, with why I, I talked about accountable pluralism. As state superintendent, you know, um, first of all, I'm, I am the Zellman of the Zellman voucher case. Um, and the Supreme Court is really moving. If you follow the Supreme Court decisions, they're really moving more toward uh, funding uh, private and parochial schools. That's one thing. Yes. Second, and that's happening in lots of other states with regard to vouchers, private school scholarships and charter schools. And, you know, I had three children, all who are very successful, thank God, I don't want to knock, knock on wood or whatever, but, but they all were very different types of learners. And um, as a parent, I mean, um, you know, it, it was expensive to put all three of your kids in private school, and we didn't have very many choices. And today, I think parents, all parents, not only poor, but especially poor parents, need better choices. And as state superintendent, I saw how um, people exploited poor kids by um, making money off of the charter school movement um, and that there is no accountability in these private school um, scholarships. And I thought, you know, in some ways, when you only have one system, like the common school, which was never really, the, it was sort of a myth of the common school anyway, uh, and um, I think, well, you know what, we're moving toward pluralism, but other democratic countries have done this much better than us because they hold people accountable. So I always like the work of Paul Hill. And uh, he, he wrote this book in 2013 or 15 about a democratic constitution for our public schools. And he, he was, um, um, as I was, very upset 
about where the um, school choice movement was going because of its lack of accountability. And, um, and that we were not giving poor parents really good quality choices. Lots of charter schools only last for five years. Now, look, there are wonderful models of charter schools out there. I don't want to, you know, bash that. But we need more of it. You know, we need more innovation. We need more experimentation. And we need data. And we need people to understand uh, quality processes and how to measure it. So, um, I, you know, so that was really important to me. Plus, if you look at like 26 state policies on school choice, they're all over the place. And it's not a coherent system. They're discrete programs. So I try to uh, use my imagination and say, look, we have an ailing system. If I were queen of the world, what would I design? And I designed this system, which is would be a system of schools. The CEO would be a superintendent type, but they would manage a portfolio of schools. The money, we wouldn't fund schools. We would fund students. And, um, and that we would stop the property tax uh, because it pits parents against one another. It's not equitable, but we would have a statewide taxing system with an equalization formula based upon the needs of students and their families. And I think with new emerging technologies, we could get a better sense of how to merge educational funding with health and human service funding and get better data. I mean, one of the good things about te uh, technology, I think, for from um, a research perspective, is that we will have these incredible databases, or we can, and we could understand what works under what conditions and why. And um, that's what I was sort of arguing in Chapter 6. You know, where is the role of business, philanthropy, state government, the federal government, in trying to build a stronger R&D for American education and bring all people to the table from multiple perspectives and see what would come up. Do an X prize, rather than go to the moon or Mars, why don't we do an X prize for um, uh, different types of educational systems, do some good research design, evaluation and see what works under what conditions for what types of children and families and provide better choice and accountable school choice um, for for parents. So much to aspire to, I think, in that vision. Uh, Susan, thanks for writing the book. Thanks for joining us on the future of education. And thanks for continuing to push for quality choices and options uh, for the families who need it the most. Really appreciate Thank you. it. And we'll be back next time on the future of education. 